Lord, we are gathered together from all over the world to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is acceptable to you, to our spiritual service of worship. We come to offer our time and our talents and our treasures. We don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we have to admit there is a restraint inside of us. There are voices of alternatives that would guide us to other places. There is a disease unto death implanted in each one of us. And so we ask you this morning to take your word and apply it to our minds that we might not grow shallow and apply it to our hearts that we might not grow cold and apply it to our feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen. As we try to understand why God made each of us as he did, irreplaceable by any other person on the face of the earth, why we have been through what we have and what he has yet for us to do because that's why we're still alive. He has a purpose yet for us to do a mission that cannot be done by anyone else. Why he has brought us to this tipping point, so to speak, where both personally and congregationally, our special mission can make a larger impact in this world than it ever has. We grasp a foundational truth. We have to come to grips with who we really are. And we can only see who we really are through the eyes of God. Through who God sees we really are. And so we come to the unpleasant part of the picture. You see, we have said that we in a larger sense, are here for the glory of God. The Westminster Confession says, you know, what is the purpose of life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We have seen that Scripture inextricably ties His glory to His glory in us. Not just His glory for, or His goodness for us, or His goodness to us, His goodness in us. There's the rub. Because we, when we look honestly inside, it's not just goodness there. It's not just God's goodness there. So I'm going to talk to you about sin today. And I want you to know, just like always, I'm preaching this sermon for me. If you get any good out of it, that's great. But this is the one I need to hear. This is the one I need to grasp my own sin. It's difficult to talk about sin in a very personal sense. It's not difficult in a general sense. 
The Bible says this about sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it simply says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who didn't agree with that? I mean, there are more people who acknowledge the reality of sin than believe in God. Uh, if you're an atheist and you're here this morning, thank you, first of all, for being here. I'm so glad you're here. If you're online, you're an atheist or you're an agnostic and you're not sure about the whole God thing. I'm so glad you're with us. Thank you. But I will almost guarantee you something. You acknowledge sin. Let me tell you how I know. If you're in this room, even if you're an atheist, where are your car keys? Are, there in, are they in your pocket? Or are they in the ignition of your car with your doors unlocked? See, if they're in your pocket, they're in your pocket for a very good reason. You acknowledge the reality of sin. When you left your home, did you lock your door? Why? Because you acknowledge the reality of sin. When you go to a financial institution and you want to take out a loan, and they say, well, we're going to have to check in your background your financial records. We're going to have to have some sort of account. You're not offended. Of course, you understand that. Why? Because you acknowledge the reality of sin and you know there are people who are trying to get what they don't deserve. So generally speaking, all of us acknowledge that we live in a world filled with sin. Here comes the tough part. When it comes to us, it's a little bit more difficult because we switch from acknowledgement into the language of rationalization or justification. We switch to the language of, well, I may have some sin, but at least I'm not. At least I don't. There's a sinner over there. I'm not that bad. That's our only, I, I, there, was a, there was a man who came years and years ago to this church and he was a salesman to prisons. I'm, someone will kind of, I'm glad you're with us. You'll get a kick out of this. Salesman to prisons. And, and, and he, he came back one time and he, he, he not, I don't even know what he sold or what prisons he went, went to, but he not only uh, talked to the officials, but he, he talked with prisoners. And he was making good friendships. And, 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 and they would ask him, oh, what's going on out there? Because they didn't get to see the news very often. Well, just before this one trip, he had just seen on the news that someone went into a household in the area and not only stole from the household, but killed the inhabitants. And so when he made this trip, he went in. One of the prisoners said, so what's going on out there? And he told him of this account. He had just seen it on TV that this robber went in and he stole the, 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 uh, the, the, the items from the house and then he killed the inhabitants. The prisoner said this, you know, it's guys like that that give robbery a bad name. <laughs> he said, what? He said, yeah, it's guys like that that give robbery a bad name. He said, I'm in here for robbery. I would never do that. He said, as a matter of fact, when I robbed people, I never robbed poor people. 
I only robbed rich people that I knew had insurance. So in a way, I wasn't really robbing them. I was robbing from the insurance company who could well afford it and half of them are crooks anyhow. <laughs> do you see what he's doing? He's doing exactly what all of us do. We rationalize our sin. Our sin's not that bad. Let me tell you the spiritual autobiography of every one of us that is written in Genesis. This is not just the spiritual autobiography of Adam and Eve. Adam means men, Eve means women. This is the spiritual autobiography of all of us. Do you remember in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, where he puts the man in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it? And then he gives him a command. He says, Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let me stop right there. Hebrew is an experiential language. It's a language that is not just cognitive, it's a language that is relational. And so knowledge, the word knowledge in Hebrew, Adam knew his wife, means to have an intimate relationship with. And so when God said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, what he was saying is, don't take evil into yourself. Don't establish a relationship with evil. For in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now some people say that didn't happen. Oh, wait just a second. Fast forward. The man and the woman are standing in front of the tree that has been forbidden them. Do you know we still have it in our nature when somebody tells us we can't do something, that's all we can focus on. I can't do that. That's all we can pay attention to. He could eat of any tree of the garden. Which one are they standing in front of? The forbidden tree. And the woman and the man are standing there and the Bible says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I want you to see the rationalization of the process is going on right now. The tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. How many of us say, well, God wants me to eat, there's nothing wrong with eating. Well, God wants me to enjoy beauty, he's the greatest artist of all. Well, God wants me to be wise, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? She took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband with her. Now, I just got to interrupt this. Where was the guy? Where was the spiritual leadership in that? I mean, this guy is playing the role of a potted plant. He not doing anything, just a, She gives it to him, says, yes, dear, and just ate it. Holy cow, that's a whole nother sermon. I'll get to that one. I will get to that one. But I want you to see something. 
She's rationalizing all these why she should do what she knows she shouldn't do. Because it's part of how we rationalize sin to ourselves. It's hard for us to acknowledge sin in us. I mean real sin. I had a cousin, still have him, uh, and, and, and way back, years and years ago, he got radically saved. You know what it is to get radically saved? Man, you gotta, you gotta save everybody else the next day. And you just, you, get, you go out and you just start telling people how, why they need to get saved. And you start telling people how big a sinners they are. Well, he went to my grandmother. My grandma, you, you, I've told you about my grandmother. First Methodist Church, fruit on her hat. Back in that day, that generation didn't really like to talk about personal sin very much. So Mark goes to her and says, Grand, I want you to know you're a sinner. You're a sinner. My grandmother was devastated. She said, what? He said, you're a sinner. Well, by the time I got to her, she was just in tears. She said, Joey, I'm not that bad, am I? And I said, well, Grand, all of us are sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. She said, I know, but he talked like it was personal. <laughs> I was able to say the sinner's prayer with her before she died, not for my comfort, but for hers. The point is that we can just hardly go there. But I want us to go there this morning. And I want you to know that the Spirit is working among us so that we can be honest with ourselves. First of all, let me explain to you what sin is. Not just its pervasiveness, but what it really is. Sin is not a mere mistake. You in all the other religions where you can kind of earn your salvation, they think of, they think sin, they'd say, okay, everybody makes mistakes. It's not a mistake. You can cure a mistake and you can correct a mistake. Sin goes way deeper than that. In that original language, in that original passage, sin is something that gets inside of us. You know, we always look to the cross, but you don't understand the cross until you understand the need of the cross. John Stott once said, we will not understand the cross as something done for us until we understand the cross as something done by us. We were the reason for the cross. We were the reason he was there. And so we've got to, we've got to face a very harsh reality in ourselves. We inherited this tendency not to want to put God on the throne, but to put us on the throne. Not to want our world to revolve around God, but want the world to revolve around us. And so, there's something that grows inside of us. In Romans, the writer, who is a Christian, 
He has accepted Christ. And he still is struggling with this warfare that's going on inside of him. You want to see, you want to read three unbelievably thrilling passages of scripture. Thrilling chapters. Read Romans 6 through 8 this week. You talk about a roller coaster. Oh my goodness. But I, I said last week there are two theological terms that we have to come to grips with. One is justification. That's in the colloquial terms being saved or being born again. We all need that new life in us that will give us a new life. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's justified, never sinned. You're that clean. But that doesn't automatically take sin away nor the power of sin. Therefore, we need the other word, sanctification. That is a word that means becoming holy. Getting that new life in all of your life. And that's what this writer is struggling with here. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, this is what he says. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Because if you're honest, every hand in here would go, you know what it's like to do the very thing you hate. Therefore, there is something stronger inside you than just your decision, just your values. There's something stronger inside of you. He goes on to verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. See, if he's a Christian, his identity is Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For we who are Christians, that's our life. He's our life. But there's still sin in our life that dwells in us that's more powerful if we let it be than that identity. He summarizes it in verse 20. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In the Old Testament, the word sin, hata, means to miss. In the New Testament, the most widely word used in Greek is hamartia. It means to miss. Now that sounds fairly harmless, doesn't it? When you're aiming for something, you just miss. But there is attached to those two words damage done by missing. Let me, let me give you a metaphor or simile. When evil Knievel would aim for a target and miss, bones would be broken. Damage was done. He still is in the record books as having the most bones broken. Damage to himself. And that's exactly what sin does to us. It damages us. It destroys us. And there is a sense 
in which we say, okay, I'm okay with that. Because we don't realize the extent to which it not only destroys us, but it destroys our relationships. We don't realize the extent to which it's, it's taking over our lives. This is what it says in James. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. What is lust? Generally speaking, lust is want, something that you want that you can't have without destroying your relationship with God. Something that you want that you can't have without destroying your relationship both with God and with others. And when lust has conceived, I want you to remember that word. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Remember the words, for the day you eat it, eating it, you shall surely die. Remember what it says in James. It says, it says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in, in, in Romans 16, um, um, uh, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Let me tell you a story. And it's gross and it's graphic but it's metaphorically accurate. My brother-in-law, Mark, uh, um, spent years as a biologist before he became a pastor. And he pastors now one of the largest United Methodist churches in the United States. But I remember him telling me a story of when he was in a practicum in Belize, in the jungles of Belize, doing research. And in that time, he had this Guide. She was a huge woman who was fascinated by all aspects of the, of the life of the jungle. And one day they were going through dense jungle and they were about to come out on a little clearing where the sun was coming through this, this little, little open space. And she jerked, she, her hand went to show, she jerked him down into bushes. He thought, what in the world is going on? She said, and he looked out, and in this clearing, there was this huge tarantula in the middle of this clearing. And he was in a battle with this huge wasp. It's called a tarantula wasp in, in colloquial terms. And it kept buzzing the tarantula. And the tarantula was up on its hind legs trying to sink its, its fangs into this wasp. And finally, the wasp came down, dove down, and went into the grasp of that tarantula and stuck its stinger in his abdomen and again and again pushed that stinger into his abdomen. At the same time, the tarantula was sinking his fangs into the wasp. And they just rolled there. Mark said, I just watched them. They just rolled in each, it locked in a, locked in a, in a, in an embrace, it seemed like. Until everything soon became very still. And Mark turned to her. He was going to say something. And she just put her finger. She said, watch. And he looked out. And the tarantula slowly began to move. And he righted himself. And he crawled out 
crawled away. So Mark looked at her and said, so I guess the tarantula won. And she looked at him and said, it would only seem that way. You see, what the wasp was doing when she was stinging him was implanting her eggs in his abdomen. What will happen now is those eggs will develop into larvae, sucking the life juices from that tarantula until they take away his life and out of his dead carcass will hatch the children of his enemy. I want to tell you what happens when sin conceives. I want to tell you, although you already know, the energy it takes from that which is healthy and good in your life and slowly consumes you into that which is destructive. And not only that, you would think, would you not, if we're destroying our lives, that we would stop? No. You know why? Because we really don't care about our lives. We don't see ourselves as valuable as God sees us. We don't love ourselves like God loves us. And so we can destroy our lives. But here's another Greek word in the New Testament for sin. Adakia. Adakia means sin that destroys those who love you. Sin that destroys those who you love. You see, if sin were just about us, that would be one matter. But Satan has a strategy. He doesn't just want you. He wants those you love. He wants to destroy them. He wants to hurt them. Do you remember that old Mills Brothers song? You always hurt the one you love, the one you really shouldn't hurt at all. Arakia. That's what it means. And even when we can see that somebody else might be hurt, because that's the only thing that will stop our sin, only when we love someone more than we love ourselves will we stop our sin. Only when we see that, many times we don't see it until it's too late. Do you know why? Because our enemy is the craftiest creature that was ever made. It says that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Don't you think that if the enemy was truthful and came to you and said, do this and I'll destroy your life, that you would never get into it? Of course you would. Nobody's that dumb. But he comes to you 
and gets you to reasoning why you should do the very thing you, should, you know you shouldn't. With two lies, by the way. <laughs> the first lie is this. What's it going to kill you? What are you making a big deal of this for? Is it going to kill you? Remember the admonition. The wages of sin is death. The answer to that is yes. What's it going to kill you? When we and all our human wisdom go, no, it won't kill me. And then we commit the sin. Then he comes back with the second line. Well, you've already done it. You might as well keep doing it. Feels good, doesn't it? And for a while, the damage does not become evident. And so we think we have this little private sin that's harmless, that nobody knows about. But what we've just done is we've given him license to our whole life without our realization. Let me tell you a story. Long ago, there was a, a poor man who lived in South America. And he had a family and he loved his family. And he had one dream in all of his life and that was someday he would own some ground and someday he would be able to build them their own house. And they could live in it as a family. And so he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked. And he finally got enough money that he put money down and bought this little bitty plot of, of, of ground. And he went out and he scavenged for materials for the house. And what he couldn't get just off other people's junk piles, he, he saved so that he could build. And finally he built this house. And it was a wonderful little house. Wasn't anything fancy, it was one room, it had one door, two windows for a cross breeze. And they moved in and they were so thrilled. They were so happy, they had their own house. One day, a greedy merchant came by. He saw their happiness. He was more than a little jealous. He wanted to own the house. And so he went up to the man and he said, I want to buy your house. He said, I'll pay such and such for it. It's a very fair price for the house. And the man said, no. We just built this house. We love this house. All of us kind of built it together. This is our home. The next day, the merchant came back. And he offered him a higher price. He said, no. The next day, the merchant came back. He offered him a higher price. The homeowner said, no. The next day, the next day, finally the price got up to an unbelievable amount for that house, for that place, in that culture. It was like $5,000. And the man looked at the merchant and said, you don't get it, do you? I will not sell this house for any amount of money. This is our home. Money doesn't mean that much to me. You don't get it. So the merchant said, okay, I understand. And he's looking at the house. Now remember what the devil, what describes the devil. He's more crafty than any creature. 
He spotted a nail in the middle of the top of the doorway that was just sticking out a little bit. And he said, okay. He said, but can I just buy that nail for $25? The homeowner said, you want to buy a nail for $25? And he said, yeah. Sell me the nail for $25. He said, okay. So the man gave him $25 and he went to get the nail. He said, oh, no, no, no. Don't remove it. Just keep it there. And remember, that's my nail. The next day, the merchant brought this old, rotting, dead carcass and hung it on that nail. You could not get into the house or out of the house without bumping into that dead carcass. And the more it rotted, the more there were birds of prey all around picking at it. There were maggots that developed into flies. The flies were biting his family. It smelled horrible. And when that carcass dried up, he brought another one and another one. And for months, this family lived in misery. Finally, the man said to the merchant, okay, I'll sell you my house for $5,000. And the merchant looked at him and said, oh no, now the price is not $5,000. The price is $5. Do you understand what happens when you give the devil just a little bit of your life? Just one nail, just one nail. Do you really think he's only interested in that part? Do you really think it will stay there? No, no. The wages of sin is death, and he will not be satisfied until he has not only destroyed you, but he's destroyed all people you love. And here's my question. Are you going to let him do that? Because there's another part to this story. And this is the part you get to before you realize how good it is. The part that says... God is not only willing, but wants to give you the free gift. This is what it says. The second part of Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is, is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let me tell you what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just going to heaven when you die. Eternal life is something that is planted in you. It is light. It is light that cannot, become, cannot be overcome by the darkness. It scares away all of the darkness. And anytime you open up that one of those compartments that you've been hiding from God and hiding from others, light comes in and destroys that. God wants us free. Christ said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God wants us to walk in righteousness and holiness because it leads to the joy that you've always wanted, the joy that you were born for. Jesus said, 
He who commits sin is a slave to sin. But I have come that he might be set free. I will make him free indeed. It says in Romans chapter 6 verse 14, sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is not just mercy for what we've done wrong. Grace is the power to live right with all of our lives. And the only question is, do you want it? Because you can't manufacture this in your own strength. This is something only God can do. And as we turn more and more of our lives over to God, he gives us that living water. He gives us that eternal power. He gives us that freedom. He gives us that joy. He wants all of you. The devil wants all of you, but God wants all of you more. And the question is, what do you want? And the question is, what will you do to have it? I'm gonna do something this morning that we don't usually do, but it seems appropriate. I'm gonna give an altar call. Those of you online, when I give this, we're gonna have a song, and anytime during the song you wanna stand up, at the end of the song, I'm gonna pray. And I know it's tough to get your body out, but I gotta tell you, it's part of commitment that you would do something uncomfortable. It's part of another stage of life that you would do something uncomfortable. So I'm gonna pray two prayers. And anybody in this room who wants to come forward We'll, 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 have, we'll, we'll be prayed for in two ways. Number one, those of you, come on out, come on out, just get ready. Those of you who have never said before the prayer of salvation, you, you believe in Christ, but you've never accepted him personally and publicly. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you're saved. And so I'll pray that prayer with you so that it's your prayer. But you have absolutely no doubt that Christ is in you because you know you've invited him in and you know he promised to come in if you would invite him in. If you've never prayed that prayer before, I want you to come down. I want, you to, I want to pray that prayer with you. And the second prayer is this. Some of you have a nail in your, in your life right now. You've given it to the devil. And you said, it's just a nail. And you realize this morning, it's not just a nail. And it doesn't stop with a nail. And you want to get clean. You want to give that nail back to God. And you can give that nail back to God. God owns you. He owns the house. He owns the universe. Don't think you've got to keep your word to the devil. So if you want to come down and get rid of your nail this morning, I want to pray for you. As Lori sings this song, if you're moved by the Spirit, Wherever you are in this room, come on down. I'm going to hug on you probably if I can get to you. Because this isn't, a, this isn't a mechanical thing. This is a relational thing. Jesus once said, I give you eternal life. The slave has to leave the house, but the son and the daughter never have to leave the house. Come on home.